our Father in heaven, thank you that you are Lord of lords, King of kings. You are on the throne of the universe. You allowed my father and those other four men to be killed because of your mysterious and perfect ways. And Father, I thank you for my mother who trusted you and, and obeyed you. And I thank you for your word, which helps every one of us to live for you when we seriously and earnestly seek to know the truth and to know you. So I ask for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had a very happy and easy childhood, even though most of you think living in the jungle of the Amazon would be absolutely frightening or horrible. And I'm sure there were times when my mother was horrified at the dirt or the nakedness or the lacks of interest sometimes, the, the lack of interest uh, the Indians showed. Sometimes they would listen to those stories that Dayuma and Rachel and my mother told them. And other times they didn't seem at all interested in just, it was, it didn't matter to them, but they did believe that there was a God. And I'm just thankful that I got to live a little over two years with those Indians. I was perfectly happy, played just like any little three-year-old would play, three to five years old. And when I was five, we had been living in this hut with no walls. My mother was tired of dirt and stuff getting on our few belongings. No walls, as she said, around that little hut. So she had a house built with walls, and uh, Kichwas came into the, to the little village of Tiwano to build that house. We had screen windows, and she had uh, not as much rain coming in uh, as it did from the side. Sometimes it rained so hard, and the wind was blowing so hard, it would come into our little hut with no walls. But now we had privacy. But I do remember that little bamboo bed that I slept on next to my mother, and the way the Lord protected us was obvious throughout those two-plus years that we had there. My mother sang to me every night beautiful hymns, The Lord is my shepherd, great is thy faithfulness, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Beneath the cross of Jesus was one of her favorites. And she taught me to trust in a loving Heavenly Father. She taught me that our shepherd was watching over us. And so every night between 6 and 6.30, everybody went to sleep because the sun went down at 6, and everybody had a fire by their hammock, keep away the mosquitoes as well as for warmth. We were in the foothills of the Andes. She might have said that in the film. And so it was cool at night, and I slept on a little bamboo bed on logs. The bamboo was tied on top of logs. I had a woolen sleeping bag my mother had made for me, and my mother had a hammock right next to me. So we were sort of kitty corner and the fire between us. And during the night, as all the Indians did, she would wake up to push the logs together to keep the fire going. And she had a stick that she would do that with. And she always looked over at my bed, and she saw one night that there was a black circle near my head. 
And so she took her stick, hoping that it might be a puddle because the thatched roof leaked sometimes when in a good rainstorm. But she took the stick and touched the black puddle, and it was a black snake, and it simply slithered off my bed and off into the jungle. So that's how the Lord protected us. He had an angel that just made that snake go away, and I never knew. I mean, if she did tell me in the morning, I don't remember that she told me because I was too young. But the way, even in the river as we played, you saw that river, um, clear running water. There could have been anacondas every once in a while. I don't remember ever seeing an anaconda. Um, but we were protected from poisonous snakes every day. We didn't see them all the time in the little village, but if we walked through the forest, we saw them. I'll never forget walking behind her, some Indians behind me, Indians in front of us. We always walked in single file. We walked quietly because the Indians taught us that if we see a snake, we don't jump and we don't shout or scream. So I remember walking and watching my mother's head as I looked up above her head, about this far above her head, was a green vine snake. And green vine snakes are very long and thin, and they can, like all snakes, hold themselves still up in the air. And it was on a green vine. So I remember watching, not saying anything, but continuing to walk. And, of course, the Lord protected my mother then, too. <coughs> So I grew up with this sense from my mother that we did not need to be afraid because God was with us. And I really wasn't afraid. One time I walked into the jungle by myself on a little path that was going to the garden of where the women grew manioc and sweet potatoes. And they often went in there, did some weeding, went, picked manioc's out of the, uh, manioc out of the ground and I came back by myself, and my mother asked me, Val, were you afraid to go off by yourself? And she had never said to me, I don't, as I remember, she didn't say, don't you dare go into the woods or the forest by yourself. But I was often with the children running for just a little bit into the woods to get grapes or to get some sweet flower that had nectar in it. And I said, no. She said, you weren't afraid of anything? And I said, jellyfish and tigers. Well... <laughs> silly little three-year-old um, she had shown me a National Geographic with jellyfish and tigers in it so that's what popped into my head but she said Val you know we have panthers and jaguars and snakes but you weren't afraid of I just shrugged my shoulders and generally the Indians attitude was shrugging your shoulders about anything that was around the mosquitoes like she said they were constantly slapping at flies and they never complained so I learned just from watching my mother and watching the, the Indians. And I do want to say, she calls them Alcas, which means savage. They do not want to be called Alcas anymore. So we call them Waurani. Because I grew up calling them Alcas, sometimes I'll slip and say the Alcas. But I am supposed to say the Waurani, which means the people. When they discovered and they became a Christian tribe, they became more and more aware of the outside world, they said, don't, ha don't let people call us Alcas. We're not savages anymore. We have stopped killing. So they are the Wyodani. And uh, you heard some of the singing. And you, as I said, my mother sang to me. And then she would try to get them to learn a simple song. She would translate something like Jesus loves me into their language. And she would say, this is the way it goes. 
you know, listen to me. It was in their language. So she thought she would, they would want to learn to know. They just laugh at her and say, we can't sing like that. That's what you white people sing that way. We can't sing that way. And so you heard one of their songs. They literally had three notes in their musical scale, literally. They did not sing other notes, so they said to us, you sound like birds, because, you know, our songs go up and down all over the scale. So that was fun and funny, but it was always that sound. Every song had exactly the same tune. And my mother listened to one of the songs one time. It was usually a woman that started a song, and she'd be the leader. She would be the one that to decide when it changes to the next verse. So she counted the number of times that they sang that same phrase, 70 times. And then finally the lady changed it to a different verse. But again, that was the sound all the time. So she was amused by that. The Yaukas were, the Waiodani were amused by us singing. But the wonderful truths of those songs, as my mother sang to me every night, just sank deep into my heart, and I trusted her. I loved her. She was, she was honorable. She was noble. She was courageous. I didn't know those words as a little girl, but I look back on what she did and sitting in her hammock trying to figure out how can I help these people when really they make their own clay pots and they do their hammocks and they know how to cook in the fire and all that, but she nobly carried on, trusting that God had brought us there. And one time, there were some funny things that happened, of course. One time, um, we went off for a fishing trip in the canoes with, with some of the men. They carried these long spears in the canoes, and they could see deep down into the water and, and spear fish. And I remember loving watching deep down how clear the water was and watching the fish and sometimes you'd see a silver flash of the fish and, and they would they were excellent marksmen and they pull up the fish and drop it into the to the canoe well we went for the day and she had left a piece of meat in a pot she said on the film that we got usually once a week a package of food and mail that's how we got the national geographic and so she this meat that we got, we tr she would try to keep for as long as possible. No refrigeration, of course. And uh, so she was looking forward to having that heated up when we got back from the fishing trip. She had a little bamboo table next to the fire where she had left the pot with the top on it. And it was a heavy pot. We came back. She opened up the pot, and there was no meat and a wash rag in its place. And she asked the Waodani, where's the meat that was in there? Because she knew they didn't, they didn't steal. She, they did not take any of her things. They would pick up any of her things and say, where did you get this? Or how was this made? You know. But she said, what happened to the meat? And they said, oh, the monkey took it. Well, there was a pet monkey that traveled through all the huts and was a complete nuisance. And um, they said, well, she said, well, didn't you try to stop the monkey? Didn't you try to uh, get the meat away from it? No. <laughs> Again, just a shrug of the shoulders. It was no big deal. Well, my mother was pretty upset by that. And I remember I got her impression of the monkey and didn't like the monkey from that, that time on either. So I had a, such a happy childhood, and I had a mother that could be trusted. What she spoke to me was the truth. 
and she sang this wonderful little song. Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. All this day thy hand hath led me, and I thank thee for thy care. Thou hast warmed me, fed me, clothed me. Listen to my evening prayer. You can find that song online, um, but she sang that often, and that was my simple understanding of the Lord is our shepherd. He watches over us, and he takes care of us, and I accepted whatever my mother said. She never said vain words to me. She said, spoke the truth. And she's told me that she didn't really explain how these men that we were living with had killed my father and the other four men until I was about between four and five. And it wasn't a huge upset for me. And because I had not known my dad, I was not really longing or terribly sad that I didn't have a dad. Although I sat down next to one of the men one time and asked my mother, can he be my daddy? And she said the Lord hadn't given him to her to be my daddy, but maybe someday the Lord might give her another husband. She didn't know, but I left it at that. You know, it wasn't a huge problem until I moved to the States when I was eight, eight and a half. And I went, I started visiting friends, began to have friends and American girls, everybody asks me, wasn't it hard for you to transfer transfer from the jungle to New Hampshire? It wasn't. I have the personality of my dad. I wanted adventure. I, I like change. I wanted to do something fun. So going with my mother to New Hampshire was a whole new thing. It was sad to say goodbye to the Quichuas because we had lived with the Quichuas the last year and a half if, after we'd lived with the Alcas. Excuse me, the Wyodani. And uh, so we moved to New Hampshire, and I, my mother fortunately found two girls that lived near us before I started public school in fourth grade. So they were my best friends. And I remember going to their houses and seeing their dads and beginning to think, it'd be nice to have a dad. The Lord provided my mother's second husband when I was 13 and a half, almost 14. And uh, he was a wonderful stepdad for four and a half years. He died of cancer when I was 18 and a half. The Lord took my mother through two widowhoods. She stood fast in her trusting and not complaining. She said the, the Waurani Indians taught her to, several things. One of them is accept life the way it comes. And the other is, he takes care of us, and we don't need to be fearful or worried. She saw that in their not complaining. They're not talking about fearfulness. They did scare the children every once in a while by saying there are evil spirits in the jungle, and they'll get you if you do something bad. <laughs> and, of course, that would make the children afraid. But there wasn't any more to it than that. There wasn't any worship of a god. They simply believed there was a creator, but they didn't know about Jesus until my mother and Dayuma and Rachel began to explain to them. And they just simply accepted this truth. They accepted it, and they were thankful that we came, and they were loving to us. And I truly, truly had an amazing childhood in the jungle. 
I grew up being good. I'm a compliant person. I wanted to please. So since my mother was quite serious about obedience and disobedience, I got spanked when I disobeyed, and I knew her word was absolutely trustworthy. And so I grew up thinking it's all about being good. She didn't try to teach me legalism, but that is a natural thing that our heart does. We find what the good things are. We think, okay, I'm going to do all the good things if I'm going to follow the Lord. So in my next talk tomorrow, I will definitely talk about from legalism to grace because that was my adult testimony. But even as a little girl, hearing those songs, singing and playing, and even being homeschooled by my mother, everything seemed just right. I didn't have any uh, wish that we could go to the States. We had gone to the States when I was five for about six months for a furlough for my mother. Um, I met my cousins, had a wonderful time, went back and lived with the Indians again. It was no big deal. And so I think of my mother's seriousness, because as a little girl, I didn't, I didn't know what she was going through as a widow. And her going to Isaiah 43 and finding you are my witnesses that you may know and understand that I am he. But I also have to give you uh, these verses again, because I don't know what any of you are going through. Some of you are going through a very difficult trial. So I want to remind you of the verses that have helped, that helped my mother over and over again after her second widowhood and through her third marriage. Um, she taught me the scripture, but she didn't have me memorizing scriptures except the Lord is my shepherd. I remember memorizing Psalm 23. And when she read that, you are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, Isaiah 43, 10. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, and I am God. Every single one of you is a witness to God, of God, to other people. And the verses in, in Isaiah 43, the beginning, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. That's a promise from God. No matter how difficult your trial is, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. There is no other Savior, ladies. There is nothing else, even though we may have the deepest hurt or the deepest sorrow, there is no other person that can give you the comfort, the strength, and the solidity of being as your Lord and Savior Jesus. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And this is what kept my mother going. And I can honestly say that 
my husband and I, when I can honestly say that when we were in the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo, for three and a half years, the second year I was trying so hard to learn French. I thought going there that it was going to be a piece of cake because I had spoken two languages in Ecuador as a little girl. And I thought, well, there's that part of the brain that gets languages, you know, so I'll go to France first for four months, learn it mostly, and then I'll get to Congo and I'll have more opportunities, of course, to learn it. So I thought by the first year I would be done learning French. Fifty years old I was. I didn't learn French very well. I learned just the basics. And it hurt. It, I was so upset that my brain was not good enough to learn French. And so I said to my husband the second year, what am I supposed to be doing if I can't even speak to the Congolese in French or learn their simpler language, which, which was Lingala. And uh, we were in Kinshasa, the capital city. And my husband said, I want you to do what you have always done, and that's hospitality. We had always opened our home. The first year in Louisiana, uh, he, as a new pastor, and by the way, the biography, the yeah, she, she told you the biography at the beginning of my life, 44 years, uh, 45 years of being a pastor's wife. It's changed a little, of course, <laughs> since that was written. But anyway, 45 years of being a pastor's wife. That first year, I was not, I didn't have a clue about what a pastor's wife should be. Didn't have a clue about loving the people in the churches. I was in Southwest Louisiana and I was thinking, well, we'll get out of here pretty soon. I don't really like this place. I had come from New Hampshire to Southwest Louisiana, which is a huge change. And I was a Yankee and the Cajuns didn't really like Yankees. And so... It was a difficult year, and mainly I wasn't focused on what does the Lord want me to do here. I was focused on, well, we're going to get to grass is greener somewhere else. We're going to get somewhere pretty soon, within the next two or three years. We'll be moving. I'll be out of here. Mm -hmm. The Lord taught me that second year about loving the women in the church, getting to know them, and even trying to be chatty. I was not a real chatty person. I was kind of like my mother. And... Uh, I said to my father-in-law, who was very loving and very wise and quiet, he did not give us advice regularly unless we begged him and pulled it out of him. And I said, what am I supposed to do with these women? All they want to do is chat about their latest sale or where they got the haircut or where they've got the nails done. And I want to talk about spiritual things. And of course, I was thinking I was very holy, of course. And um, I said, so, so what do I talk to them about? I don't get how I'm supposed to be friends with them. And he just looked at me so kindly and so sweetly. He said, how about loving them? If you love them where they are, then you might let yourself talk about shopping or, you know, haircuts. He said, but just love them where they are. That was very wise advice but it didn't really sink in and, and help me. I, mean, I, I knew the good advice, but it took me a couple of years to really start trying to be more loving to those women. So the Lord has taken us a long way. Those 40, now we've been married 45 years. Um, I'm so very, very grateful for his leading. He is a good shepherd. And he did give me an absolutely wonderful mother and a father that I don't know and look forward to seeing in heaven. But I will tell you a dream. I think sometimes the Lord gives us dreams 
uh, that just encourage us. And when we lived in Southern California, Christiana is our third. The Christiana is sitting up. You want to stand up so everybody knows her. This is Christiana, and she is our third child. And she loved Southern California. We moved there when she was about five. Five. Uh-huh. Moved to <laughs> moved to Southern California. And um, I'm just I'm just so amazed at how God gave us eight children when every when at the beginning of our marriage I said I'm gonna have ten to twelve very confident very <laughs> sure of myself that I would be a great mom and after eight my husband said to me I think we need to stop at eight <laughs> that's right he tried to stop me at six and I said no no we had we need a couple more so anyway where was I going with that um dream thank you thank you so we were living in Southern California, and we had a happy, noisy household, and um, we had devotions after supper, family devotions. We all sat in the den, and I think we all got on our knees at prayer time, and uh, it was, you know, it was a regular thing we did, and of course we had children that were wiggling, and, and something would distract us, and anyway, I just remember one of those nights that I went to sleep, and I had a dream about my dad coming down from heaven to visit us. He was just like he was in the pictures, handsome, smiling. We always, we usually sang a hymn at our devotional time, and he, he had dinner with us and chatted with us, and then he sat down with us while we had devotions. He sang, my mother always said he had a baritone, lusty voice, he sang with us. He laughed with us. He got on the floor and crawled around because our son Jim was a very physical child, and so he wrestled a little bit with our son Jim Elliot. And we just had a really happy time. And then he got up and he said, "I need to go back now." And I remember having that dream so vividly, and I just thanked the Lord in the morning. And you know, I had that dream a second time. Now, usually, it's three times you think. The dream is from the Lord. But anyway, I remember having it a second time, exactly the same. And I just think the Lord encouraged me because there were times when I thought if I just had a dad to ask, because Walt's, Walt's dad died in 1992, uh, 92, 92, yeah. And um, I'm just so very thankful for all that happened in my life. And every single one of you has the story God gave you. And, and you are a witness to every single person that you know. And you have a choice to either be a complainer or to be an encourager and a thankful person. And what I said about the, the Waiorani is that they didn't complain. They accepted life as it came. And they loved us. They were even generous to us when they hardly had any food that was feast or famine. Some days the men came back with a couple of big monkeys and there was enough food for all of us. But my mother did depend on the MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, to bring food. And so I was very well taken care of. And there were days when all we had was some rice or all we had was an egg. But the Lord kept us going and kept us very happy. Now, thank you for listening to me. And I hope you all have a good rest tonight. 
but rest in the truth that God is our shepherd and he will lead you in paths of righteousness. Thank you. I'm going to just tell a, a, about three books, and tomorrow I'll tell about three more. But there's a brochure on that table that tells about all of the books that are in print still. Mm -hmm. My mother wrote 30 books, and they started being printed in 1958. And Shadow of the Almighty was her second book. Through Gates of Splendor was her first book, and it is the story of the five men. Shadow is of my father's biography. And it's one of my favorites, of course. And my second favorite of my mother's is A Chance to Die, which a lot of people have not heard of. But it is the biography of Amy Carmichael, who really influenced my mother in mission work. And I would highly recommend this. And we don't have, was it Through Gates of Splendor? We don't have many Through Gates of Splendor because it's out of stock. I think that's the Somebody wrote to me this about it. No, it's not. It's one of my, my people that ordered books. Anyway, one of them that's been a very popular book since 1958 and 60. They're not available right now. They're, they're what do you call it, back-ordered. Okay. And then my mother married three times. So she had written Let Me Be a Woman, which is on the table, about femininity and womanhood for me when I got married and my husband and I read it on our honeymoon. So in her third marriage, she decided, well, I've written about femininity and I think I know what masculinity is now. So she wrote The Mark of a Man. So if you know any young men that might need to understand what true masculinity leadership means, this is an excellent book. Okay, thank you. Thank you.